0: Welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody, and thank you for joining us again today on WFPR.FM. We are Kim and Mark. How are you today, Kim?
1: I'm doing great, Mark. How about yourself?
0: Everything is great. Excited to talk more wine with you, and hopefully our listeners uh, will get something out of this. Kim, we always pick some interesting things, I think. And, yeah. And, uh, to- Today, we have an article that was in Wine Enthusiast Magazine. It was about what does crunchy mean in wine? The word crunchy. First, I have to say that it's not a very typical thing I think we say mm-hmm. or use. So to me, I thought it was about crunchy would mean texture in a wine or the, mm-hmm. the mouthfeel of a wine. What was your interpretation of crunchy in a wine?
1: I've actually found this to be a fascinating article because I've been thinking a lot about how different, generations of wine folks talk about wine. And there is all this sort of new terminology that, I mean, as much as I hate to say it, I am not a young wine person anymore. I huh. <laughs> haven't been for a while, but there's a whole new vocabulary of wine acceptable terms that the newer generation of wine professionals is using. And this word struck me as falling into that category. So there are a lot of these terms that I would never have used and that I would not use just because I don't know the appropriate way to use them, but I can understand what crunchy means. It would never have occurred to me to have to use it or to make it up, but it kind of makes sense. So I like that it, it's a, like almost like a visceral feeling, but also like way that acid hits your palate in the way that when you eat pomegranate seeds, your mouth reacts. And that's like the best way that I can describe it. So like when you take a handful of pomegranate arils and you eat them, they are on the one hand physically crunchy because the seeds are in there and you kind of got to crunch down on them, but they're also so tart that they leave a, a mouth watering feeling in your mouth. And they're also slightly tannic. So they're they're kind of amazing in that they do a lot of the same things that wines do to your mouth. So I think that's where this idea of this wine feels crunchy comes from. Like that's the best thing that I can think of to relate it to is when you're eating a, pome- a pomegranate.
0: So you're relating it to acid
1: acid and tannins and also a physical crunch but since i mean since when you're tasting wine you're not physically crunching on something you know it's not a potato chip so we have to take out that what your teeth are crunching down on element out of it but then still sort of keep that in our mind of how is that idea of a texture being translated into this perception that i'm having for this particular wine
0: and i'm glad you said that because the listeners are probably say what What wine are you drinking? What is she talking about? Yeah. Fighting it, you know. (laughs) So, yeah. So since there's no, uh, this is another wine term that there's no formal definition, you say it's maybe a younger generation or a new wine reviewers type of thing happening. Is this bad do you feel for oh, wine? No. Or you think it's exciting because it's something new we get to talk about?
1: Oh no, I don't think it's bad at all. I actually think that wine is one of those areas where we kind of desperately need this. You know, we need the Always younger generation needed. To be in honestly informing us older folks of newer ways of thinking about things.
0: Right. right, So
1: I have no problem with these newer terminologies coming into play. And a lot of them I feel like are actually very timely and very necessary. So, you know, my little tangent on it is some of the language that we use to describe wine is kind of outdated and not. perfectly acceptable in all circles these days, whether it be that, you know, just that it's old fashioned or that it's slightly sexist, because we have a lot of those wine terms, like even just describing certain wines as feminine versus masculine, like a lot of those terms really aren't acceptable anymore. And they might've been 20, 30, 40 years ago, but they're really not. And there's a lot of those things that as times change and as populations change, and as the way that we talk about things change, I really think that it's good that there is then other ways of describing wines. So, like, I would never would have considered talk, using the word "crunchy" to describe, you know, <laughs> yeah, any type of red wine. But when I think about it, and when I think about how. Wine writers and wine reviewers and psalms and people who who think about these things are using it. So you know, I sort of sit back and I'm like, okay, I get it, I see. And we're here to be educated too. You know, one of the wonderful things about being in wine is that there's there's always something to learn, whether it's a new region or a new grape variety or even just vintage to vintage. And I think that we owe it to the next generation of wine professionals to take their ideas seriously and to realize that yeah, we don't know it all, and that things change and I kind of welcome these these newer ways of describing things.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It's, an, it's a fresher look. It keeps you motivated to keep learning. When you see things, why why is someone saying that? And then you can kind of relate it to mm-hmm. products. So I, I think it's a good thing. I, I loved your pomegranate comparison. The article mentioned the same thing, similar to with like cranberry. Cranberry,
1: yeah. Oh, so cranberry yeah. Is, the, is the fruit that they're really kind of focusing on in this article about what does this this whole concept of crunchy. Um, I kind of like using pomegranate because it's a little bit more worldwide. Like right, right. Who, who are the only people who are eating cranberries it, yeah. it, is us. Over here. <laughs> you know, New Englanders and Americans, but pomegranates are grown all over the world. And, you know, you're talking about the Mediterranean, you're talking about the Middle East. So I think it makes a little bit more sense to use pomegranate because that's a fruit that has a little bit wider distribution across the world than cranberries do.
0: So there was a couple other things in this article, Kim, it mentioned that cool climate wines, mm-hmm. they consider to be crunchy. And I, I had a different take. My take on cool climate wines is they're lighter. Mm-hmm. They don't get a lot of sugar and they, they tend to be lighter wines. Were you able to relate to that comparison? Cool climate wines have more crunch to them?
1: Yes, if you are equating crunch to acidity. So if you're
0: right, yeah, you're exactly right. Wrapping
1: your definition of crunchy around this idea of almost kind of sort of underripe fruit, like not um,
0: low alcohol, but more acid,
1: brighter. Yeah. Yeah, like a brighter, crisper, like you think about the difference between biting into an apple. That is more acid and less sugar. So say a Granny Smith apple versus a red delicious, which can be a little little mealy and very sweet and not having a lot of acid to it, where all you're getting is fruit and sugar and it, it doesn't make your mouth water necessarily. Whereas one of those more tart apples, there's there's more of a physical crunch to those apples. And that is one of those things that I kept coming back to when reading this with the idea of what is crunchy, is that sometimes we equate that physical sensation of a fruit having crunch with lower sugar and higher acid. So underripe fruit really does sort of fit that bill or, for anything. Like yeah. think about blueberries. You know, you go blueberry picking, and if you get one of those that's kind of half purple and half green and you bite into it, and it still has that toothsome texture to it. It still has a crunch and that comes along with the acid. So we spend so much time equating flavors and aromas in wine with different fruits that it's not just the flavor. It's not just the aroma. It's also the physical presence in your mouth of how that fruit feels to eat and an acid and sugar and how ripe or underripe that fruit is, I think really comes into play.
0: What about That new oak, the use of new oak in a wine removes crunch from a wine. What was your your take on that?
1: I mean, I kind of feel like that buttery nature of new oak can... Wipe anything out of a wine, which is why it needs to be used judiciously. So, like,
0: so would you? Relate- so many
1: white grapes that you just can't age in an oak barrel with new oak because they will just turn into Chateau Two by Four.
0: What about with a an oaked red? You are, are you comparing saying that if a wine has new oak, it's not smooth. So a crunchy wine is mm. something that's not smooth. Is, would you relate it to that <sighs> for a texture?
1: I'm I'm having a little bit of a harder time with the crunchiness for. Wines that have oak on them, honestly. Yeah. Like, I get the whole Pinot Noir thing. I get having, like, a crunchy... Garnacha or a Grenache, you know, Grenache from the south of France or Garnacha from Spain. And it works for me for whites, but I don't know the oak thing. It's a little more difficult for me to wrap my head around. What is the meaning of a crunchy wine when it comes to an oaked red?
0: That's funny. Cause I can relate it more. Does that make more reds. sense to you? Oh, I mean, I'm the opposite. I can relate okay. it more to a crunch in a red wine than a white wine.
1: So, like, what type of red wine? do you have a quintessential red in mind that you would, something
0: that's a big, heavy tannic oaked red? If but you wouldn't ins- that be compare smooth? that to not it's more to me, it's more texture, more body. So I could say that's more crunchy than, say, a wine that's no oak, no lighter, like a Pinot noir that's just light. Mm-hmm. To me, that wouldn't be crunchy compared to, a heavily oaked cab.
1: And see, I would describe them the complete opposite way. And this is one of, of the caveats of new terms for describing wines, yeah. is that they haven't been around long enough for people to sort of suss out yeah. what is the universal definition of this experience. You I know, we, we all kind of know, anyone who tastes wines for a living knows what Bright means, or they know what velvety means, or they know what, oh, any of the other, you know, terms that have been around for a really long time because we have a say universal, but we have a shared. Vocabulary, right? Right. And then when you add new vocabulary to that dictionary, sometimes it takes a little while for us to understand what that definition is. It so is, for something new, like... It's going to be trouble weekend, yeah. though, because
0: the first time we see it in a review, right? Which I've not seen it in a review yet, for someone to say this. First time we see it, we're going to have to taste that wine. Right. And Because you're
1: going to have a different interpretation. Right. Exactly. Of that than I so am.
0: someone... Yeah. This is one of those things that should have been in the show we did about misused terms because... Why would you use it if there's no formal definition? I understand the whole trend. It's good to come up with these new things and new looks at things. But if there's no overall understanding of it, I, you know, I don't think that should be but, a
1: barrier for, for inventing. I mean, language changes all the time. Yeah, but I mean, and, standards... and I think that the way that we approach wine and wine flavors and wine tasting also needs to change. But I, I agree, like it's it, difficult it, when wine language is there for us to be able to communicate with other people what we're tasting and smelling. And if we will, aren't in agreement it's... with what this word means, then the right. communication breaks down.
0: Right. But it also shows how the the wine in general, there's different points of view. I mean it also,
1: different... I mean it's so it, it really brings to light like how subjective words are yeah. when it yeah. comes to describing right. wine.
0: Right. So like you, even
1: you, something as basic as dry, you know, what does the word dry actually mean? Are we talking about the lack of sugar or are we talking about that tannic feeling in your mouth? And we use the same word to describe two very different sensations and two very different things. Like they should be two different words, be word to describe the same thing. Right. But I mean, it's good that
0: these things come up and I'm not sure how many of our listeners have used <laughs> the term. Or I know. Heard the term. <laughs> <laughs> We've confused everybody. We confused ourselves. and But I, I like that we see things differently. And I think it brings to light the whole thing about wine is people see things differently. And there's people mm-hmm. seeing things in a different way that comes up with these terms. And then it gives us something to talk about. And it never ends. It gives us something to talk and learn and taste to try to learn. So it's just, it's there's always so much.
1: And I think it's good too, because a subject like wine sometimes feels and seems so Stayed and so written in stone, and so like surrounded by ritual and service and tradition and history and all those things. But to know that there are always changes going on, you know, it's like language. Like we think that language is how it is, and you learn it in grammar school, and these are the rules. But it's not necessarily because language always changes, and and wine does too, and it makes sense that now we have to learn (laughs) about the changes that are going on in wine descriptions or in, you know, in any aspect of wine, whether it be the science of growing grapes or the science of making wine or all of these things, you know, it's not a static thing and changes happen and it's good for us to learn these things. And then it's important for us as educators and as sort of, you know, wine ambassadors to the world to pass this information and this knowledge along to people who are either casual wine drinkers or more serious wine drinkers or, you know, just want to learn a little bit about it. So it does sort of seem like it's this thing that will never change, but it does just like everything else. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine and we are your hosts, Kim and Mark. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine and you can find more information about Mark on his website, franklinliquors.com and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. Welcome back to The Wonderful World of Wine and as we move into warmer summer temperatures and the warmer summer months, a topic of conversation that we always love to bring up is our favorite summer wine cocktail, which is sangria. And I don't think people really view sangria as a cocktail, do they Mark?
0: No. And I think this article brought up a good subject because a lot of people want to find out what wine to use to make yep. sangria. You this know? is so this after
1: getting a recipe for sangria. This is my most asked question about sangria. What wine should I use for my sangria?
0: best red wines, this article. for Right. So we're talking reds. about red wine to do reds today.
1: So this was an article from Pioneer Woman and she has been around for a very, very long time. So she does a lot of recipes. She's got cookbooks. She's got cooking shows. But I thought that this article was really spot on and not just because She wrote, you know, a lot of things that I agree with, but because her focus on what wines to choose were really on Spanish wines, which yes, that's very traditional because sangria is traditionally Spanish. But I also think that there are so many wines that you can use from Spain that make really fantastic sangrias. That's not to say that there aren't wines from other parts of the world that will work really well, but I think there is just this plethora of fruity, young not really oaky, very easy to drink, very approachable, full of flavor red wines from Spain that are great to drink on their own, but are also really fabulous for making into sangria.
0: Yeah. So three out of the five are really Spanish grapes Mm -hmm. and they're they're Spanish grapes that can also be grown in other parts of the world. You know, Italy grows Spanish grapes and California grows Spanish grapes. So basically I want to confirm with you, Kim, sangria is so wine, fruit, some sort of liquor, mm-hmm. the, and, and a sweetener right. and fruits, right? So and more fruit. <laughs> yeah, more fruits. And, and lately I've seen a trend where it went for a while. Everyone was making it. They want to know what wine. And then they were just getting, you know, the basic sangria wine, make it easy, right? But now I think people there's because of more articles like this out there, people want to know, want to make it themselves. They want to get away mm-hmm. from the, the sangria wine or the big jug wine, and they want to go more traditional route. So uh, the first wine they suggested, red wine, was Tempranillo.
1: Right. And this is, I mean, Tempranillo is the classic powerhouse red out of Spain. It is Spain's most grown red grape variety, and it's responsible for most of the sort of prestigious Higher level, age-worthy Spanish reds from the regions that we as Americans are probably the most familiar with out of Spain. So you're talking Rioja is made with a predominant uh, Tempranillo blend, and there are other places like Ribera del Duero that is also most, if not all, Tempranillo, and some other places that this is the red grape to use. It is age-worthy. You can make it without oak, with oak. It responds really well to really hot Climates that don't necessarily get a lot of water. It kind of doesn't care what soil it's in. Like it's a very adaptable, really great grape variety. And what's nice about using it for sangria is that there are a lot of versions out there that are not that oaky, age worthy version of the grape. So you get some really nice, like light fruity ones, not a lot of oak, doesn't really cost a whole lot of money. Like you can get some really good. Tempranillo yeah, to either drink type. on its own or to make in sangria for like nine dollars. Yeah, like there's yeah, some really less. good stuff out there, or yeah, less, and, or and less.
0: Like you said, the key to me with this, like you said, is the unoaked version. They exactly can be very aromatic, very nice berry fruit that's just perfect for sangria. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you've not found an unoaked version of Tempranillo, you have to seek it out to try uh, with sangria for sure.
1: So a good rule of thumb that I have for our listeners for trying to find a Tempranillo that does not have oak on it. um, There are certain words that have legal meaning in Spain and in Italy that don't necessarily in the US. So if you see on a bottle of Spanish wine that it says Reserva or Grand Reserva, that means that that wine has aged in oak for a certain amount of time Because that is what the law requires in order for them to put that on the label. But if you don't see one of those words, if you just see the word, say, cosecha on it, that just means that it is vintage wine, it is released when it's young, and most likely... If it has any oak on it, it's just a very small amount and you're not necessarily going to get a lot of that oaky flavor in the wine. So that would be the perfect kind of wine to use for sangria. So this is one of those times where I tell people to actually look at the price tag. Yeah. So you don't want to spend a lot of money on these wines. and. I I think that that's (laughs) like, that's a godsend because, you know, do you really want to be spending $20 on a wine that you're going to need two bottles of in order to make like a full batch of sangria because everybody's coming over for the 4th of July? No, like (laughs) really want to have that $9 bottle of wine. yeah So, you know, if you can find those bottles of Tempranillo that don't say anything about their aging on it, those are the ones you want to go with for making sangria.
0: Yeah. And the vintage too, the fresher. Oh, yeah. The fresher, the better. That's they a also- great,
1: that's a really great point, Mark. So, you know, you want something that, I mean, we're recording this in 2021. So, you know, you want something that is 2019. You're not going to really see the 2020s yet, but 2018, 2019 are probably the oldest that you want to go for.
0: Yeah, fresh Yeah, that's fruit. a really good point. Fresh, fresh fruit. Absolutely. Next, they mentioned ganache, which is also yep. ganache from, from Spain.
1: Right. This is actually my go-to for sangria, even though my husband hates the grape variety. He doesn't know what, you know, won't know, uh, <laughs> won't yeah. hurt him if it's mixed with a lot of other things. For and it's grade. pretty
0: safe too because most of the time it's there's not much oak aging to it. Right, but I think it's a it's a good go to, and you can find it. It's also Italy from Sardinia. It's called Cananao in Sardinia, but this, it was brought to Italy from Spain or Spaniards. So it's also another version you can look for.
1: The Sardinian version tends to be a little different than the Spanish yeah, one. Yeah, a little not little, as not as
0: fruity, but yeah. Still makes a good sangria. Yeah. And the third red grape, Kim, was Malbec, which I like this one. It's more of an Argentinian Mm -hmm. uh, grape. To me, Malbec is kind of over the the past few years, I'm not as happy with the fruit Malbecs I've been tasting, Mm -hmm. but it tends to have a more of a blueberry profile to it, which I think brings out a lot in a sangria recipe. What's your take on Malbec?
1: Yeah, I think it's a good idea. My issues with Malbec are. Sometimes you do get them oaky, when you're not expecting to get an oaky one, because, yeah, yeah, you know, for the Spanish ones, you can look at the label and sort of suss out like, oh, this is a reserva. So I know that this has some oak, so therefore I'm going to avoid it. But for the Argentinian ones, you don't necessarily know from the label whether it has any oak aging. Yeah. So sometimes yeah. they'll put that information on the back label. Sometimes you can get it by Googling it. But I don't think that people want to go to that kind of trouble when you're in the store and you're looking right. for, you know, a bottle of wine to quickly pick up to make, make a recipe with. So, you know, even with that, that, the price point can be difficult too. Some of the less expensive ones will have oak. I, I hesitate to say oak flavoring because that seems to me like, you know, you're pouring vanilla extract into something. But there are ways to get an oaky flavor into a red wine without necessarily aging that wine in a barrel. So you can kind of bring the barrel to the wine instead of bring the wine to the barrel, or you can do like an oak chip sort of regimen. So there are ways to get an oaky flavor in a less expensive red wine. And it is sometimes hard to tell from regions that don't necessarily have all of the really, really strict rules like a lot of European countries have. So that would kind of be my only caveat with the Malbecs. Also yeah. Malbec tends to be pretty high in alcohol. Like I th- I think this is, you know, it can be a positive for the wine but can also be a negative because you're also adding Probably brandy to your recipe for sangria. All of my recipes call for brandy. And if you have a 15% alcohol wine that you're then adding brandy to, you have higher alcohol maybe than you're expecting in a, you know, summertime cocktail. So I would just caution people to pay attention to the alcohol level of the wine that they're using because sometimes you can really be taken by surprise by Malbec. And I've been taken by surprise on numerous occasions
0: by Malbec. <laughs> well, you could, you can be safe off. with Malbec. That's like a box. A lot of the box versions. Of that's Malbec. a good point.
1: Yeah, yeah that's um, actually a really good um, recommendation.
0: So next, Kim, they they mentioned a grape that a lot of people probably not familiar with is Monastrel. and uh, to me, this this wine is more earthiness than mm-hmm. I like in my sangria. What what do you think of the grape? I think the that wine? there
1: are instances where monastrel can be a little bit more neutral, but I agree with you that it's not a profile that highlights the fruit. It's more, it highlights kind of the, some of the other secondary flavors. So yeah, like an earthiness, sometimes there's a little like gaminess to it. It wouldn't be my first choice for sangria.
0: Maybe it's the more traditional, what you, when you've been in Spain, correct? Have you gone to Spain? I've not
1: been to Spain. You're, I have studied going. Spanish wines extensively, but you, I have not I, been, been to Spain. Oh, we, so much. I was a week away.
0: When we studied Spanish wine, they really don't even mention sangria, do they?
1: Oh, like, not at all.
0: Yeah. So I'm no.
1: wondering,
0: is it like a joke in, in Spain? Like, No,
1: a, I don't think it's a joke, but I think, I, I think it's, I don't think day. it falls. I mean, the, it uses wine as an ingredient, but I don't think it falls under the category of this is wine. I think it falls more under like cocktail.
0: Like you said, cocktail. Yeah. 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 I
1: think you would probably see more of it in a discussion about, say, tapas or a discussion of restaurant food or restaurant culture, but not necessarily when you're talking about fine wine.
0: Don't you think it's weird, though? We've studied Spanish wine and just it it was one of those things that wasn't even mentioned. Yeah. I think it's funny. It is a
1: little weird. Well, Well, but also, I mean.
0: No, something to think about.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it leads into all sorts of other things that yeah. we don't need to talk about on the radio show.
0: <laughs> all right, so the last <laughs> red wine they said that is best for sangria is Zinfandel. I roll this is
1: my a- this is my go-to besides the Tempranillo and the Garnacha. If I had to choose a third grape variety for using in sangria, it would totally be Zinfandel. Zinfandel.
0: Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it's a good choice. It has a lot of different fruits going on. It's a. It could be a jammy version. It could mm-hmm. be a dried version. You're not concerned about alcohol with Zins. That Zinc. would be,
1: I mean, kind of like with the Malbec, right? It's yeah, the same issue with Malbec because zins can really get up there. You see some at 16, 16 and a half, 17% alcohol. That is, that's a big guy. Like that's a big bottle of wine.
0: Yeah. But and I, I s-
1: love the jamminess of Zin. I love that it's full of like in Italian we call it frutto di bosco, so the the fruits of the forest. You know, those brambly forest fruits like blackberries and raspberries and blueberries and huckleberries and all those wonderful things. Like I love that Zinfandel has that flavor profile. Because I think that it opens up what you can do with it with a sangria. So like my classic sangria recipe calls for cranberry juice as a juice component to it. But I also like to use pomegranate juice sometimes. And any of those flavors in Zinfandel highlight any of those fruity things that I throw in there. It's just, it's a really, really nice canvas to build a sangria off of can you tell i like zinfandel
0: yeah and i'm glad you mentioned the italian because if you want a real value in zinfandel seek out primitivo which is italian zinfandel excellent suggestion and they usually seven eight nine dollars a bottle Mm -hmm. and less
1: expensive no oak
0: great fruit to it yep sometimes a little bit you know playing high on the alcohol cuz it's yeah. so hot down there but right. great value for it.
1: Yeah, and the nice thing about primitivos from Italy is that they're grown in the south, so they're grown in these warmer climates which leads to riper grapes which leads to these fuller, you know, more jammy berry fruit flavors which you're building a cocktail off of the idea of fruitiness in a in your drink. And if your base component, your wine is already full of all that fruitiness in it, you know, it it just, it gives you such a nice base to start with that then you can add your brandies, you can add your fruit juices, you can add other things to it, whether it be fresh fruit or whether it be other, whatever other flavor components you want to put in there. Some people put orange juice, some people put lemonade, but if you have a good base of something that has some really nice fruity flavor to it. I feel like you're already halfway there.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the mistakes I feel people make is they just want to keep putting in the brandy, the triple sack, the peach tree liqueur, mm-hmm. and then it just gets Muddy. like fake fruit. <laughs> yeah. Too yeah. sweet, too <laughs> phony fruit. Let the wine shine. Put the fruit in it. Enhance the wine. Enhance the fruit. If you want to spike it, okay, but you know, don't go crazy yeah. with too much because it can just get like a sickening sweetness to it. Yeah. And it kills the fruit. So
1: and I usually advise people, don't do any more than two liqueurs. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. a really good and I can put this on our Facebook page, my my recipe for red wine sangria. You don't want to do more than two liqueurs. So brandy is usually my go to. And then if you want to put something else in there, you can do triple sec, which will give you an orange flavor, or maybe you really like, I don't know, apricot or blackberry or something like that. So you could put some Chambord in there, or you can put some blackberry brandy, but I wouldn't go beyond two different liqueurs because like you said, you know, it kind of gets muddy and then you only want like one juice and you want sugar. So you're going to add either simple syrup or you're going to add White sugar, and then just make sure that it's completely dissolved in your cocktail. But then you need to balance that out a little bit. So the recipe that I have always calls for lemon juice, but you could do other things. You could do lime if you like. If you really like tart, bitter stuff, you can do grapefruit. Orange, I don't think would necessarily give it the tartness that you need. So, I mean, lemon is a really good default, but taste along the way as you're making it and you taste it and you're like, wow, this is like way too tart. Add more sugar. Or if you feel like it needs a little hit of something, some tartness to it, add more lemon juice or add a splash of lemonade, but you don't want to make it muddy. You know, you want to keep it so that those flavors really shine and that those ingredients balance it out, but don't necessarily take away from the flavor of the wine. You want the flavor of the wine to really show and then everything else is just there to lift up those flavors.
0: Yeah, we'll have to post that on our Facebook page so people get the secret recipe. Kim doesn't let out these secret recipes too often, so.
1: Only to my friends.
0: (laughs) Well, all the listeners are friends, so we'll we'll put that on the page.
1: Yep, so I will be posting my sangria summer red wine recipe for everyone on our Facebook page.
0: Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. You can find Kim's secret recipe there and other articles we post. And you can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Cheers.